Welcome to the Financially Independent Teachers Podcast, where educators come together to discuss their journey on the road to financial independence. Now, please join our co-host, Dave and Brandon, as they prepare to help other educators get fit with their finances. Uh, welcome and thanks for joining us in episode eight of the Financially Independent Teachers Podcast. We hope everyone is enjoying their spring break. It is so much deserved as a teacher, especially with the year that we've all been through. So we really appreciate you joining us today. If you think that your story could help other educators and you'd be willing to come on the show, please shoot me an email at getfiteducator at gmail.com. You could also find us on Facebook at Financially Independent Teachers and you can drop me a direct message. We would love to add to our guest list to keep this thing moving forward and helping teachers not only in the state of North Carolina, but across the country. And without further ado, as always, my co-host, Brandon Speece is here today. Coach, what is good in your world, buddy? Uh, everything is good in my world as far as I can tell. Um, you know, here it is Sunday afternoon. We got next week off at spring break. I plan to, other than coach football, play a little golf. Uh, it's a little unusual recording on a Sunday, and uh, um, and I'm actually so much more rested than usual. <laughs> Usually, it's on a Tuesday night when we record, and I'm tired, but uh, feeling pretty fresh today. So, uh, looking forward to a a good episode. Can't believe it's episode eight already. Yeah, episode eight is it has gone by fast, and they say that time flies when you're having fun. We're getting ready to go to Boone. If we have anybody in the northwestern part of North Carolina listening, we're going to be hitting up Boone, doing some biking, Grandfather Mountain, we're going to the Tweetsie Railroad. We're going to do it all and have a great awesome. time. So we really look forward to, to getting to the western part of the state. Going to be 72 on Tuesday, it says, but then Thursday night, it's supposed to potentially snow and be down in the 20s. So you never know what you're going to get this time of year when you go to the North Carolina mountains, but we are super excited. And I'm even more excited today. And it's a special episode for me as I get to interview along with you, one of my former students uh, from way back in the day, who is now, I have on here that he's a beginning teacher. Technically, he's not a beginning teacher, but I believe he's under five years. So to me, that's kind of a beginning teacher. So it's really interesting as we look back at our previous guest and our guest today, six of our eight guests, Brandon, have been math teachers. Where's our history people at? We're gonna have to uh, we're gonna have to do a, something to diversify our our guests. I, my my thinking is is that the math teachers must be the ones that are good with money. Uh, we we all need to do better in math in school. <laughs> yeah, not a surprise. I mean, they always say that if you're good with math, you can get paid. And apparently, based on the early data in our podcast, these math teachers are taking care of it when it comes to their personal finance. So, however, yeah. I do think it's too early to draw any conclusions. Very true. Very true. So with that being said, uh, please welcome another math teacher to the show who's a former student of mine and he's now a colleague of mine. How you doing, Rob? Welcome to the show, buddy. Hi, Fly. Thanks for having me. We appreciate you being on here and um, you're going to have to clean up some of this stuff because once students graduate, they all get lumped into this category of, I know you graduated, but I cannot remember what year you graduated. Can you share what year you graduated from Jacksonville High School? So technically, I didn't graduate from Jacksonville, but I was there for three years. So I'm, 
time I consider myself a Cardinal, but I left Jacksonville 2010 and graduated from Kadena 2011. So I think I had you in 2009 or 10. I don't know if I was a sophomore or junior and I had your civics class. Yeah, that would have been your sophomore year back in the day. You had me for civics and economics and I really apologize to that group that you were with that, that I probably failed you guys when it comes to personal finance, because if you go back to 2008, 2009, 2010, I don't even know if I knew what a Roth IRA was as a young teacher back then. And that's really the whole point of this podcast, Brandon, is I look back and many of the, the messages that, that I try to get out are basically thinking of things that I wish I would have known as a young teacher when I got started that I just was really ignorant on. So I had you back in 2008, 2009. Was I as passionate about personal finance then as I am now? If you were, oh, are we talking to me or Brandon? Yeah, to you. Yeah, to you. <laughs> oh, um, if you were, I didn't pick up on it. You could have been, and I was just a student who, you know, obviously didn't pay attention to many things my teachers did. Um, but I feel like you probably weren't at that point. Or maybe, maybe I just didn't pick up on it. I don't know. Yeah, well, apparently you picked up on something because when we had testing last year or two years ago, you know, we're sitting around, everybody's bored. The kids are at school for four or five hours and you can't really talk or do anything. I was digging through my old data just, just to check and see as a joke. And I saw that Rob had the highest EOC score in my civics and economics class. He had like a 98. So apparently I must've taught you something. Yeah, Probably not. It was maybe learning. more so that you're just really smart. I don't even consider myself smart though. Like, even though I'm like a, you know, math teacher and people think math is hard. I've never considered myself smart. I probably, I don't know. You were probably just a good teacher. Let's chalk it up to that. Well, I, I will take that on a Sunday for spring break, but we're so happy to have you. And if you don't mind just giving us a little bit of a background um, for the audience of what is your situation in 2021? Uh, where do you teach? Are you married? Do you have kids? What do you teach and what is going on in your world of education right now um, in 2021? Okay, so 2021, this is, uh, I'm nearing the end of my fifth year. So yeah, still kind of a beginning teacher. I definitely don't think at your fifth year, you're like a veteran or anything. You don't have the title of a beginner, but you still are. Um, I teach at Jacksonville, obviously, and I live in Northwoods, very close to the school. Let's see, I'm single and I have a house that I bought from your wife, um, 15 year mortgage. Um, what else? Um, when I was younger, I always saw myself as when I was, I saw myself as having kids and a wife and like married by now. But as I get older into the later twenties, I guess I don't even know if I want to go down that path anymore. I'm kind of enjoying the, the amount of money I'm saving. Um, so I'm thinking maybe I'll wait a little later before I get that started. And let's see. Extracurriculars, I coach swimming and cross country for the high school, and I really enjoy those. Those are kind of like my side gigs. They don't pay too well, but those are more for, honestly, I just enjoy them so much. And uh, yeah, that's about it for me right now. When did you, uh, when did you know that you wanted to be a teacher, and, and, and how did you come to that decision? I'm not sure how I came to the decision, but I kind of always knew. Like when I was in high school, I, I knew I wanted to be a teacher. And I think it's because I have so many family members. We kind of joke that it's the family business. I guess you could say that's how I came into it. But um, 
I always knew I wanted to teach. I just, it was almost like an assumed to, in my mind that I was going to be a teacher. I never really had to think about what am I going to do when I get older. I just kind of knew I would do that. Was it something that, um, that you knew at a young age when it comes to the subject area, you teach high school math. Did you always know you want to be a math teacher? Or was there ever a chance that maybe there was another subject area that you showed a lot of interest in that could have maybe overruled the math thing? Yeah, that's, there's totally other subjects that I debated. I always knew I wanted to teach, but I didn't know I was going to teach math until I left high school. I kind of went through high school figuring out like, okay, which subjects do I like learning the most and which ones do I see myself teaching? Um, And I ended up just really enjoying the math classes I took um, in college. And that's kind of where I decided, okay, I'm going to be a math teacher. I was also really interested in psychology, but as a high school teacher, psychology isn't really that big. You might have it at your high school. And I knew math would be easier for me to get a job with. So I went with that instead. Awesome. So where did you go to college? So when I graduated high school, I was still uh, in Okinawa. So I didn't really have a lot of choices there. I kind of took classes on base, um, got some of the lower level stuff out of the way. Um, Then I moved from Okinawa back to North Carolina and I did a year at Coastal. So at that point, I've got one year in Okinawa, one year at Coastal. Then I transferred to ECU for my junior and senior year. Um, you know, one of the things that we talk a lot about on this show is how, uh, how some of our teachers get started um, and what their student loan situation looked like. Uh, when you finished up at ECU and, and secured your first uh, teaching job, uh, what did your uh, student loan situation look like? So that's another reason I chose math is there was some loan. I can't remember the exact title. It was like some forgivable student loan deal where basically the state of North Carolina would pay my student loans if I taught for five years in what they considered a low income public school. So I had loans, but they've always been on forbearance. I basically just turn in a letter every year from my principal that says, yes, I'm still a public school teacher. So I actually haven't paid any loans. And at the end of this fifth year, all my loans are just going to disappear. It's going to be really nice. It sounds really interesting. The fact that you didn't go the traditional route. I know that when I was in college or in high school, excuse me, I don't know if I really knew what a junior college or community college was. I didn't know the difference between public education, private education when it came to colleges and the cost and in-state versus out-of-state. I love the fact that in your story, you mentioned that you go to community college first. What was the reason for why you went to community college before you went off to the four-year university for your junior year? Well, part of it, honestly, was that I wasn't incredibly motivated to even go to college when I first graduated high school. Um, So I didn't want to dump a ton of money on a university when I wasn't even sure, you know. Um, But after going to Coastal, I I really enjoyed learning more there. And I was like, I kind of just, that's when I really committed to it. And I was like, well, a Coastal semester was like, what, 900 bucks or something? Yeah. So I was like, why not just get these basic classes out of the way? Um, and it was actually the teachers at Coastal that convinced me I should be teaching math because they were so good. I can't remember their name, but I was like, man, I'm, I'm glad I went here and started off with the cheaper semester because I found some really high quality educators there that kind of convinced me I should go to a university and like teach math as well. 
That's really encouraging. You know, I, I always talk to my students about all of the different roads uh, that you can take. Um, you know, when I was coming up, it was a four-year school and that was the only answer. I mean, every, everybody that was, no matter what you wanted to do, no matter it was, you have to get, a, you have to go to a four-year school, you have to get a college education. And I always talk to my students now about all the different paths. And one of the paths that I point to is, uh, is going for one or two years to a community college and then transferring. And so here we ha- we're talking to someone who went that road and, and made a success out of it. Um, you also talked about the fact that you are from a long, kind of a long line of, of teachers. It's the family business. Um, so I, I think that, uh, you know, this answer is going to be um, really good. I, I'm looking forward to hearing what you have to say here. So growing up, what was your, uh, what was your relationship with money? You know, so, you know, not just what you were taught, but what you also observed. I guess you could say I grew up in a stable household. Um, we never really, I guess you could say we're like middle class. Um, money was not like exorbitant, like we had everything, um, but we weren't in poverty either. My dad was army. Um, my mom was army and then she became a teacher. So I didn't really observe much, you know, just your very standard growing up in a middle-class home, I didn't worry about money as a kid. And I didn't feel like my family was super rich either. Um, I didn't learn a whole lot about it. I never really cared. Um, you know, I was just, it was just kind of there. I didn't observe a whole lot, to be honest. So how did you account for, so I'm assuming, um, well, I guess we're going to get into this in just a second, but so when you hit the ground uh, as a teacher that first year, were you already persuaded that a teacher has the ability to create wealth for themselves? Um, um, and if I, not, when did you, when did you come to that realization? When I first started teaching, I knew I wasn't going to, to, to be able to afford things quickly. You know, I knew it would be kind of a slow grind. Um, as far as like, did I realize you could, I guess, amass wealth as a teacher? No, absolutely not. To me, I kind of figured this is what I have. You know, I'll just slowly build up a bank account and just be happy with that. Because, you know, teaching doesn't pay a whole lot in the South right now. Um, but as a math teacher who teaches compound interest and exponentials, it, and you're literally explaining it to your students, like, hey, guys, let's look at this exponential growth. I'm like, I should just start doing that with my money. And luckily, Fly is like, he just constantly was like, dude, you got to get started. You got to get started on this. And eventually I did. And then it hit me. That was the defining moment when I was like, oh, I'm actually seeing the numbers grow just like I should be. Um, I didn't realize it was this easy. So. Yeah. Do you want to share that story? Uh, it's kind of embarrassing on my end, but obviously I taught you, you were a great kid, enjoyed having you in class. And then all of a sudden, very ironic speech. So I taught, I taught Rob in class and then he comes back. I haven't seen him in probably five years, maybe six years. And Hey, oh my gosh, this guy's a teacher at Jacksonville high school. And then we moved classrooms with a principal and he ended up taking my classroom that I taught him in. So here I teach Rob St. Clair government and economics. And six years later, he's now teaching in the classroom that I taught him in. Do you mind sharing that story, uh, Rob, of maybe how I tracked you down and annoyed the heck out of you with this stuff? Okay, so if you are a young teacher in Jacksonville, Fly is like a financial bloodhound who will find you and make sure you are doing something with your money. And if you try to say no, that's not going to work. 
Um, he will keep <laughs> he will keep letting you know that you have got to do something. Um, and eventually, he didn't really give me much of a choice. It was just like, look, I you're just come with me, just have a seat, just need to talk to you for like half an hour. We ended up talking for probably more than that, but in the room on my cell phone, I created a Vanguard account, and I was like, okay, fine, whatever. I'll do it. Just leave me alone. I'll do the account. <laughs> um, so I did it. And <laughs> of course I put a ton of money in and then COVID hit. And I was like, dang, <laughs> that sucks. Um, but at the end of the day, it's been a great thing. And it's what I plan to do, honestly, for the rest of my career is just constantly uh, put money into that Roth IRA in the Vanguard. Yeah, I feel bad about that, but in the end, you're going to thank me one day. Oh, I'm and sure I will. As I tell my students, I just simply ask for like a 10%, you know, okay. fee, whatever, you know, whatever it grows to in the next 30 years, I just ask for 10% of it. But yeah, we were up in the copy room one day and, you know, we were BSing a little bit a couple of years ago and I was like, hey, you know, I really wish I would have known at a young age what like a Roth IRA is. Do you know what a Roth IRA is? Do you know what a 457 is? And we ended up walking all the way back. We have a long breezeway, maybe a hundred yards to the building we were going to. And I was like, Hey, you know, if you've got time pop by my room really quick. And I think he was like, well, I don't really have time today. <laughs> I don't and, have time for this crazy yeah, finance guy. He doesn't have time for his old teachers. It was like strike one. Like, you know, my head is low hanging down. Like I got rejected by my former student and <laughs> you know, he doesn't want to come talk to me. And then I see him again, maybe a week later, like, Hey, we should really, really sit down and go over this stuff. Well, okay. You know, if I find time or whatever, I think maybe by the third time, you know, I got him in the room, pulled up the, the Dave Ramsey compound interest calculator. And sure enough, he opens the Roth IRA. So you've got the Roth IRA through Vanguard. Can you tell us maybe how that's done? How many years you've maxed that out and kind of the process of, do you do what they call dollar cost averaging where every month you put in $500 a month to max out the 6,000 per year? Or do you do just random lump sums? How does your investing look for you? And, and how was it done the last two or three years? Okay, so first of all, I am probably the laziest, most ignorant uh, investor, but I still hope to be successful with it. Because I just pretty much randomly when I... When I'm building up money in my bank account and I'm like, okay, it's, I don't know why I'm keeping it all here. I just randomly throw lump sums into the Roth IRA, not any sort of schedule, not any sort of like budgeting. I'm just like, okay, I'm starting to get a build up in my bank account. Just dump it. Um, so that's pretty much it. I just, I just hope that uh, after enough of me dumping paycheck after paycheck into the Roth or just whenever I've got um, enough money that I'm comfortable and I have a little extra, just throwing it in there. Hopefully after, I don't know, what, 40 years, it'll be worth, worth it in the end. Um, without a doubt, it will be. Um, there's no, no question about that in my mind. Uh, so listening to how, you know, you kind of do that, you know, you don't really have a set amount each month. You just kind of dump it in when you feel comfortable that you have enough in your account. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> what, what would you say, uh, talk to us a little bit about uh, the process that you go through when it comes to your budget, when it comes to your personal budget. Uh, you know, there, of course, Dave and I teach uh, personal finance. And so we, we teach, you know, uh, you know, specific types of budgeting. What, what I've discovered is that most people don't have a name that they attach to it, but they can kind of walk us through what their process is for budgeting. And so you said, you know, you, whenever you have a surplus, you dump it in there. So I'm assuming you're fairly frugal. Um, because otherwise you would never have an ex excess to actually invest. So just kind of talk us through that a little bit about your style of budgeting. 
So, like you said, I don't really have a name for it. It's not something you can, you know, I guess it could just be unique to me. Everyone's different, but um, I don't feel like I need a lot of things. Um, like, I'm not a very materialistic person. I don't need new clothes or a new car or a new phone. I pretty much just need the basics, a couple things to keep myself entertained, maybe go out to eat every now and then. So, yeah, I do have a surplus um, of, you know, when I do get my paycheck and then what I try to do to resist any temptation to actually buy anything is anytime I feel like my bank account is getting to the point where I'm like, Oh, it's a lot of money. Cause I'm more likely to spend my money. If it's there, I take my money out of my bank and I invest it so that when I do look at my bank, I'm like, Oh, it's pretty low. Like I try to keep the bank account low, but not scary low. That way I literally can't spend the money because it's not in there. That's pretty much my only strategy. Sounds like a, another, I'm sorry to interrupt, but it sounds like ahead. another example of forced scarcity. I love the idea of forced scarcity where, you know, you make yourself feel like you don't have any money to spend, but you're actually tucking it away. And our most recent guest yeah. that we had uh, on the show last week, they, they did something similar where they said, you know, we go out to eat a couple times a month that's really about it. You know, we do travel, we do vacations, but we have a bunch of our money locked away in these accounts that, you know, maybe it's um, equity in our home. Maybe it's uh, the Roth IRA, which neither one of them are 59 and a half and old enough to touch it, but they live off just enough to survive. And they put all the surplus into these accounts and it doesn't really feel like they have a lot of wealth, but one day it'll all pay off. So you don't have a set budget. You don't like to have a bunch of extra money laying around I remember when we talked early, um, when you first got hired, that you were renting. So can you tell us a little bit about the story of how much you were paying for rent and you know, how it's worked out being a young home buyer uh, as far as like monthly payments go and, and things like that? We had uh, Mike Titzel on episode three or four, and he said he thinks that if you're going to live in a place for a year, you should buy a house. So how long did you rent for before you bought a house? And what does that situation look like for you? Okay. So the, how I went from like renting to homeowning. So my first two years teaching, I lived with my parents because I didn't have the money to, I didn't have any other option really, but they didn't mind. They didn't care. Um, so I just basically stockpiled paychecks while I live with them. Um, and then I felt like I wanted to get out of their hair and I had enough money at that point to do so. Um, so I, I started renting and I believe I can't remember exactly. I think I was paying like a thousand dollars, um, 1100 a month, roughly for renting. Um, but I, I started to think about how much money I would lose in the long run. I had no plans to move out of Jacksonville and you and I had talked about it and you were like, basically convinced me that you know renting isn't the way to go if you're not going to move why would you do that um start putting that money towards a home and i feel a lot better now that i've done that i've had this house for two years and it's nice to know that i'll own this place in 15 years because i mean in 15 years if something terrible happens guess what i still got a place to live but if i'd been renting i guess you know that wouldn't be the case uh, my mortgage is lower than my rent was. Granted, you do spend a little more on a house just with upkeep. But so yeah, two years with my parents, one year renting. That's when I committed to the house. Um, and I have no regrets at all. I think that maybe if I could go back and do it again, that third year, 
maybe instead of renting, maybe either buy the house then or stay with my parents one more year, just cut out that year of rent. I would have saved a ton of money doing that. Um, but yeah, that's how I ended up here. So I always say that, I, I mean, if I could go back and do it again, I would have done exactly what you did. Uh, exactly. I mean, you, you know, almost to the T, I would have, I would have bought a house early, done the 15 year mortgage. And then what I've always said is that if I could go back and do it again, I would have paid that house off as fast as I could. And then I yeah. would have, I would take my mortgage uh, once I've got it paid off and start investing it because uh, then you can really create some real wealth because you'll have your mortgage to, to dump in your, you know, your Vanguard right. uh, accounts or, or whatever. So, um, you know, I'm kind of curious, uh, do you have a long-term plan, a long-term financial plan that extends beyond the mortgage being paid off? Not really. No. Um, I do know that after this 15 years is up and the mortgage is paid off, it's going to be, cause right now for me to max my Roth and everything, it can be a little tight, you know, like I'll have to, I'll have to really commit to the Roth, but I know that once my mortgage is done, it'll be a lot easier for me to fill out the Roth without having to worry about anything, but I don't have any big plans except for putting more into the Roth and maybe, I, I guess at that point I would need to start investing elsewhere. Cause like I said, I don't want money in the bank. I want that scarcity feeling. I'm not sure how you phrased it, but that's what I would want. So I guess if I were to make a plan, I would just invest it somewhere else that extra cash I would have. Yeah. My wife has a saying in, in real estate and her saying, I'm sure she didn't make it up, but she uses it. And she says, whether you rent or you buy, you pay for the home you occupy. And you know, at the end of the day, I don't think renting is a terrible thing. Uh, some situations, renting is a smart idea. It's not that every single person should buy. It could be a, like Dave Ramsey says, a huge disaster if you buy when you're not ready. But if you look at Rob's example as a second year teacher, third year teacher, if he was renting for 1100 a month, that's $13,200 that he paid to an apartment or a landlord that he'll never get back. Yeah. Where now that he's signed up for this 15 year mortgage, how old were you when you bought your first house? Uh, 25. So had this, yeah, 25. yeah, 25 years old. So by 40 years old, I mean, literally after, you know, your 16th, maybe 18th year teaching, you have no house payment. And I tell my students this a lot is imagine if, imagine if at 30 years old, you get married and your first year of marriage, you have a child. But in that first year of marriage, you and your spouse buy a home and you put it on a 15-year mortgage. By the time you're 45, as that kid reaches their sophomore year in high school, you no longer have a house payment. So as they prepare for college, you don't owe anything on your house. Maybe your house payment was $800 to $1,500, $1,800 a month. Now you can cash flow your child's college education. So what an awesome thing that you got started, not only on just buying a house, but you were smart enough to, to take a little bit more of a monthly payment now, and you're going to have that thing paid off. If I know you, and I think I do, you'll probably make extra payments and you'll have it paid off before you're 40 years old. Are That's you making plan. any extra principal payments? Uh, right now, I'm putting around, not a whole lot, just like 150 extra into the principal a month. Because um, like I said, it with trying to max the Roth and trying to basically buy this house as quick as possible. Um, I can't afford to do a ton of extra right now, but that's something I would like to do in the future. It's just to put down as much as possible. Yeah. And if you look at, uh, if you look at the Roth calculations, I pulled up uh, my 
my compound interest calculator here. So let's say you're 25 uh, and you've maxed out your Roth IRA, which is 6,000 one year. And you do that from 25 till 60 years old, uh, 500 bucks a month, every month to max out that Roth IRA. If you had an 8% return, you're looking at 60 years old, having uh, roughly $1.3 million in the Roth IRA. And all of that growth is tax-free. So maybe you didn't really know what you were doing early on. You didn't really know about the investing or the home buying, but you're on a path right now that by 60 years old, when you look at the Roth IRA, you look at the equity in your home that will be paid off, you know, you're going to be a multimillionaire by the time you're 60 years old on the current track that you're on. How does that make you feel? Well, so, okay, this is going to sound weird maybe, but I have this weird irrational fear that like all the money I put in to the Roth, like one day I won't be able to get it out for whatever strange reason. Um, I, I don't know if that's just me being like worried about how much money I'm committing to it, but um, should everything go according to plan? Yeah, it feels great, but it hasn't, it's like I was telling Brandon, like before you got here, we were talking about spring break and I was like, it doesn't feel like I'm on spring break yet, you know, cause it's still Sunday. I haven't technically missed a day of work. It doesn't feel like I'm an investor yet. Cause I just started. Um, so I don't, it, it feels like I'm not going anywhere, but I know I will. So I feel like if you ask me that question again, like how's, you know, how does it feel to be on track to be a millionaire? I don't feel like someone who's on track right now, even though according to the, the charts, I will be, um, ask me again in 10 years, you know, we'll see, ask me, we'll see how long you do this podcast. Ask me at the very end and we'll see. That's awesome. That, that really is. It's awesome to hear you say that because that is a, a younger person's perspective on investing. And I think it reflects the reality for many. I think that a lot of people, when it comes, I know it reflects the reality for me. I always thought of, investing is being for the already wealthy because it takes money to make money. Yeah. And so there's no way you would have got me. Well, maybe Dave could have, but mo- not very many could have got me to invest money at an early age. Uh, but it, so instead I threw all that money away. Um, so, you know, I, I you know, I, I, on, on questionable spending habits, but um, uh, so I, I guess, you know, what you're saying reflects the reality that a lot of people, I deal with, especially young people when it comes to investing, because it's hard to see the finish line. I mean, you're so far away from it, yep. it feels like. Exactly. You, you know, so, um, but, you know, l- just just listening to where you are starting off uh, from a, from a you know, and one of the things that I think we talk about sometimes is, is that, you know, we're just all sitting around talking about examples of, of how people have built wealth. You know, we're not, you know, I'm certainly not qualified to tell anybody you know, how to invest their money or what they should be doing financially. Um, I'm not the one to do that. But but this podcast is all about encouraging people, especially teachers, uh, to know that they can build wealth. And I can just tell you from a teacher who's been doing this for 20 years, I'm 43 years old. Um, I'm, I'm very envious of the decisions you've made because I wish that I would have made some of the same ones. You see, you're not like, I've heard that before. Like, man, you're, you're on such a great path, you know? Oh, wow. You're, I, I'm glad you started early. I hear that from a lot of people who I talk to this about, um, and they're all praising the decisions and everything. But again, like you said, from the beginner perspective, <laughs> you're like, I don't see what's so great about this. I don't have any money. Like it's all in investments and I don't see the finish line, but 
everyone who's telling me, oh, yeah, I wish I had done that. Like, they can't all be wrong. I'm sure it's going to pay off at the end of the day. Can I, if I can ask one more question, have you considered sure. um, like national boards or anything or anything else that you might be able to do to increase your, your pay, whether it be a side hustle? We did an episode on side hustles one time. Our, both of our guests last week who were married, they both were nationally board certified, which increases your, your pay, I think, 12%. Um, have you considered anything to increase your pay? Uh, I've kind of considered two things. One is coaching, but coaching really doesn't pay that well for the time you put in. And also I actually tend to spend a lot of money on my teams just for, I guess you could say I barely break even, um, sometimes, but I've also always wanted to be like a private tutor and I actually have my first uh, client, I guess, lined up uh, for a summer session. Um, so I want to get into the tutoring side gig because so many kids struggle with math and I love math. So it's, it seems like a win-win um, for me. So I'm going to start that this summer, um, just starting off with one kid, seeing how I like it. And then if, if I really enjoy that time spent, I look forward to kind of expanding that out to multiple kids at a time, hopefully. Yeah, I think you'll find, uh, based on numbers I've heard, I've, I've heard of math teachers that charge anywhere from 20 to 50 bucks an hour. You know, if you could just tutor, you know, three or four hours a week, every week of the month, um, you know, that could be your Roth IRA money right there. And then you don't maybe feel as tight as things are right now, even though it sounds like you like the forced scarcity again, yeah. of not having the money. Cause if you don't have it to spend, you know, then you can put it away and not feel, you know, tempted by the devil to, to blow it on things that maybe you don't really care about. Exactly. Yeah. So really, you know, this is not a specific theme today, but you're a young teacher. How old are you now? 27. So you're 27. Now, if you had a first year teacher that was teaching next to you, so we come back in the fall to the teacher work days in August, and there's a brand new first year teacher and you don't do what I did. You don't start tracking people down, but this person actually asks you, Hey man, you've been in it, you know, five, six years. If you could give me three points financially for what I can do as a first year teacher, what would you suggest? Well, two things. One, the thing about a first year teacher is they're not in finance mode. You already know they're in like survival. They're like, well, how do I teach, you know? So they're not even thinking about finances, which is kind of a problem, you know? You get your first job teaching, you have no idea that you're even, you're just not aware that you should be focused on your finances, you know? Um, so the first thing I would do with the first-year teacher is just, because I doubt any first-year teacher is going to come to you. If they do come to you asking finance questions on their first year, then they're probably already ahead of the game. Um, first of all, I'd be like, hey, uh, you should go talk to Coach Fly. He'll probably get you set up. Um, he got me set up, and I would tell him that just start off simple, you know, just just get a Roth IRA and put some money into that as much as you can. Um, and I would tell him if they're a first-year teacher that, especially if they're a young first-year teacher, that you're doing you're doing great by even asking these questions. Because I, if you didn't talk to me, Fly, I wouldn't have asked these questions on my own. You know what I mean? Like, Young, young people don't tend to think about those things on their own. They need, they usually need someone just to mention it. Cause it's not like we learn about these things in college. Well, I guess I didn't, I didn't learn about it in college or high school. So, you know, I got my first job and I was making money. I had no idea what to do with it. Um, so I would just tell them to 
Start off with the Roth IRA. Just try to max those if you can. And then from there, I, I'd have to recommend them to you because to be honest, that's my only plan right now. I know we've talked about 457s, which I may get into that. Um, me and you could talk about that later, how to get that 457 set up. But I would just tell them to start off small and ask questions, ask a lot of questions. Because there's, if you were never taught this stuff, you're going to have to learn like the vocabulary. You're going to have to learn um, just how to get started. But it, it is pretty easy once you get started. Um, all of the things that you just said was was actually really great advice. Um, you you are nailing, I, I think, what a first-year teacher should be thinking about, and that is asking the questions. I always make the joke on this show that I took a vow of poverty when I started teaching because I never thought <laughs> that a teacher could make any money anyway. So I just thought, well, as long as I can pay my bills every month, I guess I'm not worried about it. Um, I wish that I would have, I always say that I wish I would have met someone that could have pointed me in the right direction. And you know, we've, we've talked about several times on the show that, you know, we're not victims. We could pick up a book and read it or, or whatever, but nobody intentionally put the information in front of me either. Um, nobody put a book in my hand. Nobody taught me any of those things. Um, and so I would have had to have taken the initiative. And so I think that the advice to ask questions is probably um, the best piece of advice you can give. Uh, to someone who's just starting out to make sure that they start focusing on their finances and not just focusing on their career. Um, if I could, let me just ask you a question again about kind of your personal budget, uh, if you don't mind sharing, and that is your relationship with vehicles. Um, did you, have you, do you have a car payment? Have you, did, you buy, did you buy your car with, um, with cash? How, how did that work? So when I was a student at Coastal, I also was working at a food line um, in Jacksonville. And I was just unloading trucks for like 10, 25 an hour. Um, and then my first year at ECU, I would drive back during my breaks, like spring break, all those breaks. I would come back and I'd work there again. And I eventually would accumulate money to spend on my first car, which was like, I can't remember the year. It was, uh, it was like almost as old as me. It was a Volkswagen Golf. And I paid cash. It was like two grand or something. Um, really old car. And I paid cash for that. And I, I remember my dad and I made this deal that since I was young and like still trying to get my first car and stuff, that if I would pay the cash for the car, he would help me uh, with like the insurance payments and stuff like that. So I was like, okay, that's fine. You know, I'll take that for now. So it's technically his car, even though I gave him the cash to buy it. Um, and then one time I remember, I can't remember the exact circumstances, but he asked if he could borrow my car, you know, technically it's his, even though I paid for it and he ended up selling it to my uncle. And I was like, well, what the heck, what am I going to do now? Uh, you just saw it. He didn't, he didn't mention anything like that. He just sold it to my uncle. He was like, all right, well, uh, he needed it because he's driving a lot and blah, blah, blah. So then he let me borrow his car, which I'm still using now. I'm still borrowing it. I have no idea how long I'll be borrowing it. Um, so yeah, I had my own car quote unquote, um, until he sold it to my uncle, which now it's kind of funny. Cause I watched my uncle drive around in my car and stuff. Um, so I'm currently borrowing my dad's and don't even have one at the time, which is another big way for me to save cash right now. But I'm also kind of, I'm kind of thinking in the future of what kind of car I'm going to have to buy or what I should get, you know, should I get a truck? Should I get a car? 
Um, cause sometimes with coaching, it's hard to lug around a lot of gear. So right now I'm in the process of borrowing my dad's and just thinking about which one I should be getting. Cause I don't think he's going to let me do this indefinitely. Yeah. I think this is one of the big roadblocks. We talk a lot about student loan debt and the student loan crisis on our hands as a country. But I also think a lot of times that we get the attitude uh, and I know Brandon, you like to say that, you know, we're not victims as teachers, but we have YouTube, we have books. And I think when you're a teacher or just in college in general, you've been in school from kindergarten through 12th grade. So 13 years of schooling and then maybe four or five years of college. And then we want to pat ourselves on the back. It's like, man, I, I've been, I've been in school for, you know, 15 to 18 years. I deserve, I deserve is a dangerous saying there, but I deserve mm. to have a new car payment. I see my friends having cars. Oh, yeah. People are posting all their new social media pictures of their new car. And maybe at the holidays with the ribbon and the bow on the car, you know, to me that, that again would be the worst thing my wife could ever do is Merry Christmas, honey. I got a brand new car for us and our payment's going to be $600 a month, but there's a, yeah. a big red bow on it. I would send that thing back so fast. Uh, <laughs> it would make me nervous, but the average new car payment, I showed this to my students on Friday is $568 for a brand new vehicle. And it's over $350 a month for a used vehicle. So the Roth IRA is $6,000 per year. Once you hit 50, you can increase it to 7,000 a year. But I think a lot of Americans are literally driving away their retirement. So the purchase of a vehicle and making smart choices when it comes to vehicles is crucial, especially for teachers where we don't have a bunch of extra disposable income between retiring with financial independence and prosperity, or just being somebody that was the teacher that had the nice new car every three or four years that, that turned some heads in the parking lot when the 16 year old saw it. So that'll be a big decision for you moving forward. And it, it is a blessing to be able to, to borrow a vehicle. Well, I, I just want to encourage you and just say that, um, man, it's been a pleasure, a real pleasure talking to you and, and listening to you talk about how uh, you've begun your journey as a high school uh, teacher and uh, in, in terms of creating wealth for yourself and commend you on some good decisions, even though you might not be able to feel it just yet. Um, yeah, I feel like you're, you're, you're really making some wise decisions and, and, and doing some good things. And so uh, it, it's been great meeting you, great talking to you. And, um, you know, I look forward to, to hearing from you in the future, maybe having you back in 10 years and, and, and finding out how this whole thing is developed for you. Yeah, that sounds good. Like a, a 10 year recap. How are we doing? How's it looking? Um, there you go. So how does it look from like maybe a middle of the road perspective? Well, I could be completely different about it. You know, I might not feel as so like right now, like you said, the finish line's not even in sight for me. I might have a totally different perspective then. Yeah. I think that goes back to last week's podcast with Ed Walsh from uh, Swansboro high school. He's now at the early college. And he said, when he started doing this, you know, he chipped in 200 bucks a month here and there and, it never really felt like he was making a dent. Although he said he would check it like every day, the first couple of years, Oh my God, did I make money? Did I lose money? He's like, you know, you're going to go crazy. If you do that, just, just do it. And now that he's been doing it for 35 years, it's paid off and him and his wife are both millionaires. So when you're in the process, you almost feel like, is this really going to happen for me? Exactly. Uh, and I'm in the middle too, cause I'm 38 and, and I do have some investments going and I can start to see the growth but the first 10 years that I did it, I was like, okay, you know, this kind of sounds like BS. Where's that, where's that exponential compound growth that everybody talks about? But it takes 15 to 20 years for this stuff to really kick in and start to go to work for you. But if you don't start planting seeds now when you're an early teacher, 
you, know, you don't want to have to be 50 years old and then have to plant your seeds for retirement. Although Miss Angie was on an earlier episode and she started at 50 and it's now starting to work for her as well. But the earlier, the better. Um, we greatly appreciate having you on the show and hopefully we can uh, keep this thing going for a decade and check in and you can let us know that you're halfway there to being a millionaire. That sounds good. Well, we appreciate it, everybody. And thank you for joining us on this week's version of the Fit Educator Podcast. We hope you join us for next week's episode. And remember that someone is sitting in the shade today because they planted a tree a long time ago. If you like the show, please consider subscribing and leaving a review. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook at Financially Independent Teachers. Until next time, we hope you all have a great spring break. Take care, everybody.